Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Corey Tinder Low Expectations Knocker. <laughs> there, I promise there will be context to that later in the episode. Yeah. <laughs> My expectation is just distance. Oh boy. In today's episode, we'll be talking about a new or at least growing class of malware uh, that we've not really discussed before the latest in critical vulnerabilities in Microsoft products, and some security research into dating apps. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and slide on in. What's a dating app, I say to my wife, who's next to me? <laughs> oh boy, someone's sleeping on the couch tonight. <laughs> So today, let's start with some research from Cisco's Talos team, uh, where they just published an article this last week on the growth of what they call proxyware. Uh, so infections that attackers are basically using to monetize victims' internet access. And it's got some parallels between this and crypto mining, where cryptocurrency mining, like I can set up on my computer a miner to then earn me money by basically burning electricity and my computer's GPU processing power. Well... In the other side of the world, there's also this uh, these programs where you basically set up a an agent somewhere on your network that can be used as a proxy then for other customers of these these services. So Honeygain, PacketStream, NanoWire, basically you're selling access to your network to other people that use these services. Um, even like, kind of anonymous. It's like a peer-to-peer -peer VPN. We talk about private VPNs where the goal is not necessarily getting someone else's bandwidth, but at least getting the anonymity of their a different IP address. This is like a seems like a, a crowdsourced version of that. Yeah, it's like if you were to run a like a, a Tor exit node on your network. So a dark web exit node where other people are using your internet access then to pop out and access different resources on the internet. Uh, obviously significantly less secure than Tor in terms of privacy, like it doesn't have the onion routing protocol protections on it. It doesn't, it doesn't, have, it doesn't have to be, but I think we'll learn through the story that some of these proxy where the legitimate ones are not really security focused. Yeah, and they like they advertise themselves like for legitimate uses, like evading geo restrictions, uh, ways to basically peer-to-peer -peer bandwidth saving. So download a file across multiple proxy locations and ultimately transfer it to you through peer-to-peer -peer sharing instead of just using yours. Um, like that, it seems like an interesting technology, but you can probably see where some of the downsides of this technology would be as a even as a quote-unquote legitimate user of it. Where basically, and by the way, yeah, before we get into the, the the today's downsides and what Cisco is talking in this kind of new trend of proxyware. I did want to give a pop pop Corey perspective and, and kind of share, you know, th this idea is not not new. Uh, as you'll see when we talk more about these legitimate apps and how bad guys are kind of trying to use them more maliciously, that is totally new. And I think the volume of it's taken off. But what I did want to mention is ever since our bot days, I mean, any of the old IRC bots and normal botnet, having uh, a Trojan that has SOX proxy functionality is pretty typical. 
like uh, when you're a bad guy and you have a bot on a, a victim's computer, it's kind of like an all-purpose Swiss army knife to do whatever you want, to steal data, to install more stuff. But they also used it to, to spam from you or to route their traffic through you. And they typically did it through old school ways that weren't as friendly. I mean, the one thing we'll talk about, these legitimate proxy services make it a lot easier for a non-technical person. You don't have to set up a SOX proxy and then point your computer to another server. But I did want to point out that using victims as a proxy has been very common in the past. And the, the main reason botnet authors would do it is one, so spam would come from the victim, or two, so that they could actually do more malicious things using the victim IP to hide behind. So the, the concept of, of using a victim as a proxy is not new, but I do think this proxyware is is a very newish development to me anyways. So yeah, we're more about it, basically Mark. instead of rolling your own proxy in this case of you know setting up a SOX proxy and going through it within your own network, you are instead, similar to cryptocurrency, just monetizing the fact that you can install this software on the victim's computer. Um, so Cisco, through the research, actually found like one malware family that dropped a modified version of the Honey Gang client, so one of these proxy services, a Monero crypto miner, and an information stealer. So like you said, like a Swiss army knife of basically monetization at this point, where they get a little bit of money out of mining cryptocurrency, they get some money out of whatever their affiliate ID is with this Honey Gang client, basically, um, and then information stealing to potentially sniff off some passwords and sell those too. And like there's actually like... I found a a subreddit, an entire subreddit dedicated to Honeygain in this point. So it's r slash Honeygain, where you can actually see the quote unquote legitimate users of this service that are selling their internet access for, I mean, some of them are bragging about earning 20 bucks over the course of six months for this, which does not seem like a lot of upside for the potential massive downsides of using these services. No, I think it will be before you even get to criminal use. I mean... Think of what private people even use sometimes VPNs for, which is piracy or going to gross sites on the internet. I, for that 20 bucks for six months, you're also probably getting your IP thrown on all kinds of abuse lists and banned and being targeted, by not, not targeted, but found by Google as unusual activity. You're probably having to do more than your share of normal prove to me you're not a bot thing. So I, I just don't get the legitimate use of this. It's you're not getting enough money for all the heartache you're probably going to get for your IP address being used for all kinds of sleazy things The people are probably writing through it. You hit it. Even, like right on even the, head. the legitimate folks. <laughs> yeah, if you go to that subreddit, it's like every other post is either someone talking about their 20 bucks they earned uh, or someone talking about whatever the latest services that blacklisted their IP, basically. Like you said, like additional CAPTCHA stuff for Google. Uh, some have been straight up banned from like Wikipedia, for example, for malicious activity detected from their IP. Like you're right. Like when criminals use services like this, they're they're not doing it to go, you know, browse Wikipedia and read up about World War II. They're using it to go do malicious changes. They're using it to launch their attacks against other individuals as basically a way to obscure their actual location all by using these services. And I would suggest some of the legitimate, even non, they're, they're not called criminal people that use privacy VPN, probably don't have the purest things in mind all the time when they're using those services. So no. Eve, I, I wouldn't even want non-criminals being proxied through my internet connection is what I'm saying. Yeah, the biggest issue with services like Honeygain is 
basically the, like all these connections that come through the service are logged as your IP, which means you're going to get it banned by sites. You're going to get it added to spam block lists for sure. Like it adds issues with like another topic we've chatted about a few times, like the proposed hack back laws that keep popping up in uh, Congress, for example, where, OK, let's say I'm an organization. I see this IP address launched an attack and access my database server like one of my I know you're, Corey, pretty against hackback because attribution is hard. And one of my counterpoints was, well, you don't need to know who did it, but you can know what IP address it came from. But this completely negates my point and that, yeah, you know what IP address it came from, but it could have just been some idiot in this company installed the software to monetize the company's uh, network access. And now hacking back, yeah, you're not even hitting the right target. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I guess you're inadvertently getting rid of the person that's inadvertently allowing right. the crime to happen but still that's where the it, it's so easy to proxy all over the place now this is one of those things where i can't imagine there's many people that like i i'm the one that pays for my internet access at home obviously like it pays for those at the company but like me paying for my internet internet access at home it does not make sense for me to try and monetize it with this i feel like the people that use this are probably like like my kids that would go in and be like, oh, I'm going to sign up for an account and I'm just going to go ahead and earn myself 20 bucks by using this and whatever uh, doesn't matter kind of thing. Like I can't. I wonder if the of... new criminal use of it is going to actually increase their business. Like, like you say, if I were a user of one of these services, I'd rather just use a private VPN than this. Uh, I never would put this on my own computer, but I wonder if, you know, I think we'll get into it, but Talos is founding these. These are convenient pre-made clients for the malware actor to get a proxy, and so they're secretly and quietly using these as the installer as part of their malware attack. Yeah. So, and it's not even about like them getting a proxy for their own attacks. It's just it's another way to get a constant revenue stream from one of their infections, and another way that like it can lay under the radar it's not like ransomware where you know it encrypts all your files and you know you have a ransomware infection like if you get infected with one of these that drops one of these proxies unless you're inspecting your outbound network traffic logs and seeing a bunch of people going to sketchy sites you're never you gonna know. know unless the your traffic slows down so much from the usage and it's very much like the trickle funding of i think crypto mining right i don't think they're making millions of dollars a day because mining is takes a lot of work but if you make Honeygain one of your clients you install in botnet uh, in a botnet of a hundred thousand or let alone a million, you know between Monero crypto mining and Honeygain on a million computers, then it could add up to significantly worth it. It's not worth it for the million of victims, but uh, they're losing a lot of bandwidth for nothing. And but, that's uh, yeah, the one controlling exactly the million it. botnets doing. It doesn't well. matter if it's earning a fraction of a cent per day per infected host if you've got 10,000 infected hosts like it does add up and it's like a low cost to include it in the actual malware payload itself like a little bit of additional work to drop that one as well I guess technically it adds a slightly increased risk of you being detected on that endpoint but even then like they're not investing a ton of time into this and it's just an additional revenue stream so it's one of those where it makes sense that this is on the rise and I it's just like crypto mining like I'm willing to bet it's going to be something we continue seeing pop up more and more over the like with these trojans that get dropped on uh, hosts. And as and, far as detection, I imagine they probably have. I don't know if the attackers pay attention to it, but I'm sure there's ways to throttle 
Like if you were legitimately using this, you could only let your users use so much bandwidth. So if they really were worried about being fined the same way they kind of throttle how much CPU they use with their Monero mining or GPU in some cases, they could do the same with this, I'm sure, in the settings exactly. file they use. And like I wanted to also chat just about like this whole business model on the whole for these these the software selling access. And it seems like there's been a lot more cases, at least I mean, this is my own just experience over the last few months where like I've seen stories of uh, hackers convincing employees of companies to sell access to their email inbox, for example. One of our analysts got a, a message over LinkedIn from someone asking them to uh, sell or they were going to pay them like $400 to just talk about our security posture, which, you know, on one hand, it could be benign. Maybe it's just an analyst firm wanting to like get a like a, a survey basically of how different companies do security but it set off an alarm bells for him and i of basically you know someone's trying to offer you 400 dollars to tell you oh what security products do you use at your company oh where do you have deployed here and there like that's a lot of valuable intelligence if you're going to go after a company like that too it's worrying the other news i recently saw i don't think we talked about this on the podcast yet even though we talk a ton about ransomware but lockbit ransomware has kind of uh, what's the word, productized, uh, recruiting corporate insiders. So they basically, the LockerBit gang, is basically looking for insiders that are willing to give away their credential as a way to, for them to get in and install ransomware. And they promise, in, in some cases, million-dollar payouts of the ransom. So I, I definitely think it is interesting how they're targeting insiders of a company or, or you know applications that are hoping an insider installs them is definitely a, a vector in. And it makes sense. Like if you're going to charge a company $3 million of ransom uh, and you convince one of their employees to let you in through the front door in exchange for a thin slice of that, like that's a pretty easy decision for a cyber criminal to make. And there's, I'm sure, enough employees of organizations out there with loose enough morals to potentially fall for something. Yeah, like that's this. the sad thing. I mean, I, I personally, my ethics... I, I, I don't think I could do that for any price, I'd like to think. But on the flip side, you think about, you know, folks of entry-level jobs making 30, 40K a year, uh, you know, in some places that's barely, you can't live on that in some places, frankly. And, you know, meanwhile, you have a $100 million company and they don't, you know, they don't feel especially appreciated or tied to it if they're in an entry-level position in some cases. So you can see why it's unfortunately a smart tactic from the attacker because they're probably going to get some takers on Yeah, it. I mean, unfortunately, malicious insiders are a very real threat for organizations. Like you said, like a disgruntled employee because of pay or some other thing, like all it takes is sometimes as a bit of a nudge and suddenly it can result in a pretty massive breach. Man, as someone that's responsible for security at a large company, this is yeah. making me pretty nervous. <laughs> I, I'm worried about just keeping the outsiders involved. Don't you? I don't even <laughs> want to think about how we handle insiders. Uh, but Man. luckily we have good people, so I'm not exactly about it. Uh, but either way, like I guess be on the lookout and make sure you're monitoring your network traffic if your endpoint protection isn't up to snuff to catch some of these threats because I guess this style of attack is going to be common enough going forward now. Um, so moving on to the next story, about a week or so ago, uh, researchers at 
Wiz research team disclosed a critical vulnerability. Is it Wiz? Wiz? Is it Wise? I think it's Wiz. There's no E. <laughs> no, Wiz is what how I'd pronounce it. I just I think it's funny. Okay. The, uh, uh, the Beavis and Butthead in me can't help but say Wiz. <laughs> Sorry, God. <laughs> Uh, where was I? Disclosed a critical vulnerability in Microsoft Azure's Cosmos DB that could give any Azure user full admin access to any other customer's Cosmos DB instance without any authorization. And they called this Chaos DB because, you know, every <laughs> single vulnerability needs a catchy little name these days. Marketing name. I will say this is a big enough one. You and I joke a lot about marketing names for good reasons, but... The one case is if something's really big enough industry-wide that people should know about it. Uh, this isn't Meltdown or Spectre or anything, but this is a, I, I would say, a, getting access to any Azure Cosmos DB is a pretty big issue. If yeah, you're using, absolutely. If, you, if you're affected by it. So there are some caveats I'm sure we'll get into. They didn't release the exact details of how, how it worked, but it was basically a chain of vulnerabilities and a new feature in Cosmos DB that lets you use Jupyter Notebooks, so ways to visualize the data out of these databases. Uh, Cosmos DB is, say, kind of like a MongoDB, so a NoSQL database. And these Jupyter Notebooks have access through Azure's infrastructure to read that data and then visualize it in some way. And basically, through a chain of vulnerabilities, they're able to leak credentials, so the, the read-write uh, primary key for the databases, which then you could use to create your own users, delete the database, do whatever you wanted in that case. And, and by the way, that that is the caveat. Even though we don't know the complete details of this, do know not everyone uses Jupyter Notebooks. So if you had a Cosmos DB and you didn't have a Jupyter Notebook enabled, you weren't uh, probably impacted by this during the period it was vulnerable. So they did. Microsoft fixed the issue pretty dang quickly, uh, but it was technically exploitable yeah, for... Yeah, it was technically time. exploitable for multiple months. And so in Microsoft's posts on the issue, they recommended that every Cosmos DB user regenerate their primary read-write key and either implement role-based access control or implement like a regular key rotation for your database to protect against similar issues in the future too. So the reason I thought this story was worthy chatting about was, A, it's a pretty massive vulnerability in a large cloud platform. Like being able to have unfettered access to every single database simply by having an account is pretty nuts but that's also like just a we and a lot of other organizations use public cloud quite extensively and this is one of the risks with public cloud i suppose is that you know there could be a vulnerability with a new feature that breaks open a lot of these walled off protections for example i think the biggest risk is the public cloud is a big target it has hundreds of thousands likely customers so bad guys are very motivated to find problems in it you know if i were arguing about the benefit of the cloud usually people like microsoft or amazon have more budget to spend on security and might have more people than the average company and more expertise so they know they're public too they know they're a target too so you know if i'm giving clouds the the benefit of the security doubt they often are financially and resource-wise in the position to build a much more secure database than the average company might be able to host themselves, depending on their expertise. But like you say, that the problem is you're extending your trust. 
you know, the ones that have better security are probably the the really rich big companies like Amazon and Microsoft. But as you can see, even they have vulnerabilities in this case. And then there's lots of little long tail of small cloud providers who, you know, you don't know if they're any better at security than you are as a company. So, yeah, it's a risk we've all known for cloud at a long time. You're extending, you're putting your data somewhere else. You're extending some of your trust in their platform and their operations of keeping it secure. Uh, I think Microsoft's an okay bet now, despite vulnerabilities like this. I think the fact that they reacted to this to, to the Wiz folks in twenty four hours or forty eight I'm sorry forty eight hours, right? Uh, if I remember right, is pretty fantastic, you know. But it was a huge issue for sure. And you're right. Like I do trust. Microsoft's ability to maintain a database infrastructure better than I trust my own ability to maintain a database infrastructure. Like things like patching and finding flaws and proactively protecting it. Like that is, they're a large company and they, like you said, they've got a reputation at stake for this. They have to protect it. So, and I'd even argue that they have better secure coding. This ultimately came down to, you know, probably some sort of design or coding mistake the way the Jupyter notebooks interacted with APIs and keys. so, But arguably, they could have better secure coding than the average company out there, too. But either way, I mean, the point still stands. The second you choose hosted cloud or someone else's cloud, you are extending your trust to them. That, that's what the whole idea of a, a digital supply chain attack is. You know, your security is now as much dependent on their security yep. as it is your own. But in this particular case, if you are a Cosmos DB user, make sure you do go ahead and rotate that primary key for your database. Uh, you should have received an email if you were directly affected by this, like if you had an instance that was potentially vulnerable at the time, but still probably best practices to change that key material anyway. General hardening practices. Ju- Jupyter notebooks are pretty cool, by the way. So if you have a use for them, definitely use them. But don't enable features that you're not using. Yep. So That makes sense too. Great advice. Uh, so moving on to the last story. So a few weeks ago, I came across this post by a security researcher called Robert Heaton um, that was not only a perfect example of writing in a second person point of view, uh, which I had to dig back to my grade school days of remembering first person, second person, third person, whatever. Uh, But uh, through the writing, they actually, it contained a lot of really interesting research into location tracking and vulnerabilities in several dating apps. And I'm realizing now this is the second time we've talked about dating apps in a very short period of time. Uh, That is not by uh, any particular reason at all. Do I need to tell your wife something, Mark? Is there something going on? (laughs) I'm I'm kidding. I'm just exactly. Um, so in his post uh, on the topic from early July, he detailed several other researchers analysis of the Tinder app, where basically within the app, Tinder will tell you uh, how far you are from a potential match. So I guess if you match up with someone, it'll say they're one mile away from you or they're 20 miles away from you or whatever. Um, and the researchers first discovery was that originally uh, Tinder's API returned the exact location of the match through that API to the app, and then the app itself did the calculation to show the distance. So you'd get the GPS coordinates of your map of your match, and then the app would say you're 20 minutes away or 20 miles away. And so that meant if you man in the middle of your network traffic, you could actually see where any given Tinder user was located. And you can see how this might be a bit of a privacy concern uh, if you are a Tinder user. 
Now, Tinder actually initially denied there was any privacy privacy concerns with this, but they quietly attempted to fix the issue by instead returning a different value, which is called distance from you. Uh, the issue with their fix, though, was highlighted by a second researcher where they found this distance from you value was actually down to a 15 decimal placed precision, meaning it would say the this match is 5.381455, blah, 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 whatever miles from you. And that accuracy is massively unnecessary for something like this. And it was high enough that if you then spoofed your location through API requests, so like tell Tender, I'm right here, and then move to somewhere else, and then I'm right here, you could basically use this accuracy to triangulate your target's location down to an accuracy of around like 30 meters or so, uh, just by saying, you know, kind of like the the example would be like with uh, how cell towers do triangulation, where they know that you are five miles away from this tower and that you're three miles away from this tower. And basically you draw circles and where they overlap is ultimately where that person Think of is. it like a, a Venn diagram from three different locations and uh, where those three three circles of towers meet in the presumably somewhere around the middle where they cross is likely where the real location is. By the way, if you get to this blog post, there's a few image. You, you, you can kind of see this so it makes sense. You'll see the three towers and where all three crosses the the within 30 meters location. Yep. So Tinder fixed this one as well, uh, this time by rounding the uh, the location up to the or down to the nearest mile. So basically, instead of saying 5.38, blah, 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 whatever, it'd be five or six. And interestingly, they went even further to kind of protect it as this final like, OK, whatever, we'll fix it for real this time thing, where now they actually split the world up into these one mile by one mile squares and then snap the location of the target to the center of the square. So as long as you're within the square, it will make your location the center of the square and then do the distance from that. And then additionally, they're not just drawing a straight line from them and measuring that distance. They're kind of overlaying like a bunch of uh, concentric squares over it. And saying, okay, if you fall within this square, we'll call it a mile. If you fall within this outer square, it's another mile. And this outer square, it's another mile on top of that. To, again, additionally reduce the accuracy to the point where like, it, it's not super accurate now, which I'd say is good. I don't need to know if someone's one mile or two mile away from me. I just need to know if they're one or 200, for example. Uh, but it also makes it near impossible to then triangulate someone's location with any accuracy. Um, so... This first post was super interesting, um, and as part of the post, um, the author, uh, Robert Heaton, actually went, so he's talking about in second person, and once he got to that whole rounded uh, number value, he thought, well, what happens if they're rounding it after the calculation? Like, could you potentially use that information to triangulate their location? So he ended up using that information then to look at the Bumble dating app and found that they did indeed, even though they were returning square numbers like three or four or five miles, it turned out they were doing that rounding calculation after checking the distance between you and your targeted person or whatever, which means that you could, again, spoof your location to a bunch of different spots and then just keep moving out until it ticks from three to four miles. And you'll know that that's where that rounding happens. So you'll know right before you were at 3.4999999 and now you're at 3.5 because it rounded up to four. 
And then by using that in a bunch of different locations, you could then triangulate the target's location again. Um, they actually had to get past some of Bumble's protections for the API. So it turns out Bumble actually signs their requests to the API. And if it doesn't have a valid signature, then the request is ignored. Um, they're using a, it's kind of like a version of HMAC, except for the fact that this is all done on the client, which means it's all done in JavaScript, which means anyone can go in and view like the key they use to append to the request before it goes through the hashing algorithm. So it was pretty trivial for them to go in and modify that JavaScript to let them make whatever request they wanted. Um, really, really quick, just for some listeners, HMAC, you kind of probably got it when Mark got to the hashing algorithm but it's a hash-based message authentication code. So you all probably know what hashes are from us talking about them with passwords, but specifically a hash used to authenticate that a message really is coming from the person you, ex or the, the thing you expect or whatever, right? Yeah, I mean, like how it's used in cryptography would be, you and I know a secret key, like let's say banana is our key. And so if you send me a message, you will add on banana to the end of it and then take a hash of that. And then when I get your message and that hash, I also add on banana to your message, hash it and confirm if those two hashes are identical, then you are the one that sent that message basically because you know the key. But with the Bumble API, because it's done in JavaScript on the client, like that key is just in there. And anyone that can view the JavaScript, which is any user of the app, could go in and reverse it basically. It's more of a... It's less of a prevention and more of just a deterrent, I guess, where it takes a little more effort in order to go in, reverse it, and then be able to make your own requests to the API. Um, but it's not a 100% protection in this case because like, it's there in plain text. Um, so uh, Heaton submitted this to Bumble and actually got a $2,000 bounty out of it, which is pretty sweet. And Bumble ended up fixing it by rounding before doing the calculation, again, to reduce the accuracy of it to a point where it's still usable within the app, but not detailed enough for you to be able to stalk people and figure out exactly where they live. And so I thought it was kind of interesting, like there's dating apps like, yes, they do location in there, but there's plenty of other apps as well um, where location and location of people in it are a pretty big part of it as well. And I feel like that's probably one of the under-researched areas for apps is how are they protecting that location information and stopping people from being able to spy on users of that app. I'd say it took, um, uh, crap, first name one. It took uh, Tinder a few times to get it right finally, but once they did finally do it right, I feel like that's a pretty robust protection. And I'd be curious to see, maybe it's time for one of our team members to go take a look at other apps that use location data that's somewhat publicly but obfuscated available to other users and figure out what we can find. Yeah, I agree. It's probably right for... I, I do think some of this Tinder geolocation stuff was researched a lot by Black Hat and DEF CON researchers in the past, but I think there are now endless, endless apps that use geolocation in some way. At this point, it just reminds me, our phones track us, you know, the, the government, our ISPs, uh, they can't know where we, where we are in our phones. I mean, that's the side effect of all these geolocation things. Uh, make sure to pay attention to permissions you give and think about it every time it's asking to know your location. And if your phone even does subtle things like let me know your location at all times versus only when you're using the app, maybe think about it. 
Yeah. It's it's one of those things where it feels like every app these days is now requesting to see exactly where I'm at. And I don't feel like every single one needs to know where I'm at. My Best Buy app does not need my location. I can just look up a, a store by plugging in a zip code. And I get that, like, you know, it's supposed to be a trade-off of convenience versus that and that, you know, by enabling location, they can do everything for you and uh, point out where the closest store is for you. But at the same time, you're giving up your privacy by doing that because now these companies have your location data. I can guarantee, well, I guess I shouldn't try and guarantee. I'm willing to bet that a lot of them store that location data somewhere and find some other way to monetize it because you don't give up I'm data with willingly. You on almost, yeah, I, I'm with you on the guarantee. I'll give you an example. I like an app called Waze. Uh, on my iPhone, I can uh, do a permission where I only let Waze use my location when I'm actually using it, not all the time. But the app is trying to always force me to turn it on all the time. Like it gives you new features like schedule when you're going to do a ride. Oh, to do this, you need to accept location all the time. So just the fact that these apps are driving me to change my, you know, why can't I just use Waze when I'm actually doing a GPS drive? The fact that they're pushing me to turn that feature on just makes me heavily suspect that they use that data somehow. And, uh, you know, if you're getting something for free like Waze, you I mean, are the product. Is Waze not owned by, yeah, Waze is owned by Google. So 1,000% they are using that data for something. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. so try I to guess, stick I don't with your guns and limit, limit it to only when you're using the app or not at all. Yep. Be mindful of who you give permissions yeah. to see your location in. And I don't know, at least with your dating apps, you're probably a little safe now thanks to the security researchers. Yeah. On the flip side, we live in a day and age where we're more than happy to ask a rando to bring a car and take us somewhere. <laughs> so That's I guess we kind of accept point. the level of risk in this new society we live in. I grew up knowing not to climb into strangers' cars, but yeah. here we are. But now I use my phone to ask strangers to pick me up all the time. Who needs a certified taxi driver that I know at least works for somebody I know? <laughs> Let's just have some stranger do it. Are you close to me? That's all All I need. You're close to me, I'll take you. <laughs> Man, what a time to be alive. That sounds like some people's tin Tinder strategy, too. <laughs> I bet it's someone's. <laughs> Everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at X-O-R-R-O underscore. Corey is at Secadept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening. And you will hear from us next week.